Cocktail College is brought to you today by Tanqueray. I know about you, listener, but I'm one of those people that needs a mobile app to track my budget. And I'm going to let you into a little secret. I actually have a line item on mine marked Tanqueray. It's true, because I'm a gin martini drinker and Tanqueray is my martini gin. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I have a Tanqueray monthly budget. But it's not just for martinis. Now, I turn to Tanqueray for any of the gin classics because it always delivers on that classic London Dry profile. You know, Tanqueray's, it's not like a good friend. It's like a best friend, a dependable stalwart that always delivers. Now, if you're looking for cocktail inspiration, well, you know you've come to the right place. But if you're looking for something tailored specifically for Tanqueray, you should head over to www.tanqueray.com now. Because you know what, listener? When it comes to gin cocktails, you deserve the best. Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. One of the things I love about taking alcohol seriously or treating it intellectually and I know how pretentious that sounds, but hear me out on this one, is that it makes things interesting that you might have found boring in high school. Fermentation is the obvious example, but when you start to get granular, it can even lead you down an etymological wormhole. That was the case for myself, at least, when looking into today's drink. Because when else would you ever stop to consider the origins of the word tuxedo? And if you don't know the answer to that, I can guarantee I'll give you 50 guesses, and I'm sure you wouldn't get it right. So here we are. It's derived from the Lenape word of the Munsee language, meaning crooked water or crooked river. How exactly that word ties to the garment of clothing and cocktail in question, we'll find out today from our fabulous guest, Kat Foster, an EMP alum and bar manager of Brooklyn's Margot. Now, the tuxedo is a complex cocktail in many different ways, but primarily because it has a number of, well, numbered variations, the most well-known of which contains sherry, which is a whole different ballgame of variations in itself. Thankfully for us, Kat is a fantastic tutor, which not only brings us back to that theme of treating booze intellectually, but also the name of the show. It's the Cocktail College Podcast, people. How'd you like that one, listener? We got our coattails on in the Cocktail College studio today as we are joined by none other than Kat Foster. Kat, thank you for joining us and Happy welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure to have you in the studio today. I'm a little bit jealous. You're fresh off a somewhat recent trip to S&P. It's been a <laughs> long time for me that I'm overdue going there. I've only heard great things. Yeah. Uh, but you were you were bigging it up. You're saying it's a good little spot. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Such good, like, corned beef, everything. Like, yeah, really, really delicious. Mm-hmm. Especially this time of year. And again, I know this is supposed to be evergreen, but this time of year <laughs> where it's drab and gray and kind of icy, kind of wet. yeah. No, it's it's the best. You mm-hmm. like squeeze in there, you know, and it's tight and cozy and like bustling and a little bit rude, but in the fun way, you mm-hmm. know, it's yeah, it's the best. I love it. Certainly, you know, a place that has authentic service and feel to it, like you say, slightly rude, mm-hmm. perhaps not a place <laughs> where you'd be rocking up in a tuxedo. I would say you would not be walking up in a tuxedo. <laughs> you know, I think that you could and they'd probably be like, all right, here we mm-hmm. go. You know, and they'd be like, what do you want? <laughs> I mean, it's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe you came out with something fancy nearby. Who knows? But the tuxedo <laughs> is, of course, the topic of today's episode. Uh, we were just chatting off air about how it's kind of surprising that we haven't covered this one yet, especially given our current era of martini madness. I'm not including the espresso martini in that as regular listeners. No, I'm talking about (laughs) real martinis. But this is a riff. Or tell us how this is a riff. Give us the give us the kind of quick short version of what this cocktail is. If I came to your bar and I you offered me it and I didn't know what it was. Right. Yeah. So so the tuxedo in its sort of most classic historical form uh, is essentially a gin martini. 50-50 gin martini or at least very wet. 
Um, just with a little bit of extra depth added to it uh, with the addition of some maraschino, absinthe, and orange bitters. So really crisp, um, you know, a little bit of sort of like herbaceousness almost from the absinthe, but overall a really nice kind of fairly close to classic interpretation of a martini. Mm -hmm. Something I found fascinating doing my own background reading on this cocktail. Again, it's, uh, I'm certainly not a scholar and this isn't <laughs> one that you come across all that often. Um, I think there's two things that are notable. The first I, w I would like us to get into very shortly, which is all of the different numbered variations. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's not something we commonly see beyond as we were chatting as well about, you know, corp survivors. Right. But the other thing is just there seems to be no general agreed upon recipe on the internet, in major publications at least, mm -hmm. right? I know I know we have the, the IBA and that's something that sometimes does veer a lot from what people commonly right. make. But is that something you encountered as well? That even though we have those riffs or the number one, number two, whatever that we'll get right. into, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of agreement on what a tuxedo is. Yeah, that's 100% that's correct. And I think it's, you know, if you look up a tuxedo online, even like the visuals of it, you know, you'll see some photos where it looks darker in color because there's been the addition of Ango. Um, you know, there's really no super agreed upon standard. Um, and even the history of it is, you know, sort of debated in terms of like who actually invented it and what their version of it was. You know, I think that a lot of times with cocktails, you see these debates about like where it came from, but not necessarily the debate about, well, this person made it first and they said it's this way. Um, and so, yeah, it's you're 100 percent right. It's one of those things that doesn't really necessarily have like a super steadfast kind of recipe. Um, you know, and I think we as bartenders love to be like, this is the right way to do it, you know, um, and often sometimes it's maybe the most like contrarian way which is sort of how my favorite version is made. But yeah, it is a drink that has, it's sort of like a Mr. Potato Head cocktail. You know, you can really like take things out, plug them in, and you're not technically deviating from it being a tuxedo. Mm -hmm. So definitely a drink that, you know, even though it has all these different sort of numerical versions, even within that framework still wears a lot of different hats for yeah. something that's seemingly so simple. Exactly. And and that was one of the things that I did have top of mind when I'm kind of Googling and researching. I'm like, both are labeled tuxedos, two examples that I view. However, the recipes are so different that I'm like, did one of them forget to add that it was supposed to be a number two or, or beyond? <laughs> so actually, before we get into those numerical values, why don't you tell us about the history? Because you started off by explaining there that it is kind of contested and... Mm -hmm. There's a lot, the more you start pulling this thread, no pun intended, <laughs> the more, you know, we start to unearth more. So so take us through it, Kat. Yeah, totally. So the tuxedo, um, especially in name, harkens back to, you know, the late 1800s. I think something that's really funny about the tuxedo that you'll see a lot of times is people will be like, it's not named after the jacket. It's named after the tuxedo club. But the tuxedo jacket is named after, you know, the tuxedo club as well. Um which I don't, do you want to hear that story of I the would tuxedo love to jacket? Hear that story, okay, yeah. so so in the so like 1886, um, the tuxedo clubs established in Orange County, New York, in Tuxedo Park, and sort of later in the year that it's established, one of its wealthy patrons, who I want to say is named like James Potter, but I, that's Harry Potter's dad, so I feel like <laughs> maybe that wasn't his name, but you know, he's this this wealthy you know metropolitan man. And he is going to lunch with the Prince of Wales, later to be Edward VII, King of England. Um, I have no idea why these guys are going to lunch together, but they are good for Harry Potter's dad. And, <laughs> and um, you know, before the lunch, he gets in contact with the prince. Again, don't know how he does that, but is like, hey, what should I wear for lunch? And the prince is like, I lately have been wearing, you know, my formal usual jacket, but without the coattails on it. So you hit up my tailor when you get to London and he's going to hook you up. So that's exactly what he does. He goes to lunch. He gets his shortened jacket, comes back to the tuxedo club, and all the boys at the tuxedo club are like, that jacket is so sick. We love it. <laughs> and he's like, awesome. So they all have their tailors make their own versions of it, and they all start wearing it to these formal events at the tuxedo club. 
Um, and after it's sort of caught on, it's kind of like a thing that they do there a lot. They go into Delmonico's in the city, and everybody at Delmonico's is like, what's up with these boys' coats? And <laughs> and they're like, that's what they wear at the Tuxedo Club. And they're like, oh, wow. So they start calling it Tuxedo's. And sort of that idea of them, you know, traipsing into the city is one of the, you know, purported reasons for the naming of it being that the guys from the Tuxedo Club would go to the Waldorf Astoria. Of course. Yeah, often um, before heading back to to Orange County and Tuxedo Park. And so they, you know, they would hit up the hotel, get drinks there. They'd be in their tuxedos. And, you know, purportedly the bartenders there started making the tuxedo for them. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of brings us into the complicated history part of it, which is that the drink supposedly was, you know, documented much earlier than when the Waldorf Astoria first documents it. Um, they document it, you know, in the old Waldorf Astoria book in like 1931, I want to say, like sometime in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is written in one of Harry Johnson, who we love Harry Johnson, of course, you know, sort of the original like daddy of cocktails. <laughs> um, you know, I guess alongside. The James Potter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> James Potter of cocktails. <laughs> um, and he writes about it in his bartender's manual in like 1900, right around the turn of the 20th century. And so... I feel like it's kind of up in the air about who actually named it that and why. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that first iteration in 1900 that Harry Johnson writes about, it is basically a 50-50 martini using old Tom gin. Uh, so a richer, kind of rounder style of gin that has a bit of sugar added, dry vermouth, um, and then a couple of dashes each of like maraschino, absinthe, and orange bitters. Mm-hmm. That's the earliest documented version of it that we really see. Um, there's, you know, a few versions of it that come out in the next couple of years as well, you know, like 1902 and three, basically writing the recipe the same way. Um, so as far as like what's on record, that's kind of the earliest account of it. Um, around, I want to say like 1904-ish, um, there is a version of it that's published that adds a bar spoon of sherry into the mix. Uh, that version still has vermouth in addition to the sherry. Um, which I just mentioned because as we get into the later variations of the tuxedo, we will touch on my favorite, which swaps out the vermouth for sherry. So that's kind of like the predecessor to that, but nobody really cares about it when it comes out and nobody's really making it that way for a long time. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) you see it around then. And, you know, this is not too long after the creation of just like the classic martini as well. And so it's... You know, it's in that world. It exists in that world. I think people drink them fairly often around that time, but people are also still very into, like, regular martinis around that time as well. Um, It stands to reason, then, that people, you know, bartenders or guests might make that distinction, right? You know, if you're going with vermouth as a supporting mm -hmm. actor, we're going to call it a martini. If you're going with sherry, that probably would have been equally popular or definitely across the pond, at least, but we're going to call it a tuxedo. You know, like, that's an easy way to make the calling card. Um, interesting that in many instances and or many of those recipes that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. we've kind of shed those bells and whistles and in, in, in the ingredients that would make it a quote unquote improved version of a 50 right. 50 martini, right? Like you, you see some recipes where maraschino pops up here or absinthe there or maybe both right. or, you know, maybe you're just going gin, sherry, bitters. And, right. you know, I think it's a really interesting one for us to get into there and again surprising that we don't have the definitive we don't have that tied down which I guess is fair you know I'd done what we often do here and looked into the Oxford Companion not in there (laughs) yeah surprisingly it's it's funny I also um you know have looked for the tuxedo in various um you know cocktail and spirits books that I have it comes up in a sherry book that I have, um, which, of course, cites it as being the sherry version with some orange bitters. Um, and in that, it says that David Wondrich says that it was invented at the Waldorf Astoria and mm. that they used sherry for it. And I certainly am not one to try to, you know, <laughs> to contest anything that yeah. David Wondrich has to say. Um, and so maybe my own bias leans me in toward being like, yeah, it's the sherry version. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it does. It has so many different things. And it's funny because they're all like little tweaks, you know, they're all these things that are for the most part, besides outside of the sherry and vermouth, all the other ingredients are in dashes. And in theory, those are like such little, yeah. 
you know, minor things that seem like it wouldn't change a drink, but they do because there's such powerful ingredients, you know, absinthe, persino, bitters, all of those things can take over so easily. Um, and so either the addition or the omission of them does change the DNA of the drink a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this later about sort of where this drink sits in like the modern lexicon of cocktails and the way that it is sort of perceived in the bar world. But I think part of why you don't see it offered very often or ordered very often is because nobody, you know, you might have the way that you think of a tuxedo, but if you order it somewhere, it might not be that way because there isn't this sort of set standard necessarily. Um, That's a great point. Yeah, for sure. Because even if it's something you love, you don't want to have to qualify every time. I mean, right. we, we go through that with a martini, but we <laughs> because <laughs> we feel like you kind of have to. But I don't know anyone with their, or I don't know too many people with their dialed in. Like I'm going to go to a bar, order a tuxedo, and and specifically ask for you know <laughs> yeah. certain things, garnishes, whatnot. Um, interesting the the Waldorf Astoria connection there. You know, we've had friend of the show Frank Kayafan before. You know, author mm-hmm. of that updated uh, version of the book and. Even he has been happy to admit that those folks over there were were more than happy to claim uh, <laughs> certain recipes that history has since proven probably weren't there. So right. that's possibly comes into it. Um, just to wrap up our, our historical authors here as well, you know, I think one of the things that surprised me about it not being in the Oxford Companion is that Wondrich himself wrote an article about this in 2007 for Esquire, which is, you know, really interesting and he went, you know, again, gin, sherry, orange bitters, two to one ratio. Mm-hmm. He went shaken. That's that's super interesting. I think, yeah, that's so weird. I mean, maybe, <laughs> yeah. you know, I I will say that in a lot of the really old cocktail texts, um, you know, a lot of the Jerry Thomas stuff and, you know, those things in the sort of late 1800s and into the 30s and everything, a lot of them do say to shake drinks um, and I I wonder if part of that is sort of like the tools of the time, if it's the volume that they were dealing with, if it's the type of ice, you know, whatever it may be, if sort of the the thing that felt more sensible to them at that point in terms of like Great dilution point. and temperature was shaking. And then eventually somebody was like, hey, that's a little over diluted. And they were like, oh, OK, you know, I mm. guess. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> um, and so but like a lot of those recipes do say, you know, like fill a shaker with ice and and then, you know, put this in and shake it which is all very sort of, you know, kind of the antithesis of how we as modern bartenders tend to build drinks, which is icing last, you know, stirring anything that is spirit driven. Mm-hmm. It, it really is sort of like the opposite kind of framework of how we build drinks, which is not to say that they were wrong, you know, because it's crazy to like look at the people who originated these things and be like, I think that that was wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, like you have to really like consider that I'm sure they very much had a reason mm-hmm. for doing it that way within the context of the time. Um, But yeah, again, you know, I'm certainly not one to contest anything that David Wondrich (laughs) has has said because I know that he is, you know, so much more exhaustively researched these things. But for myself personally, if I'm making one, I will be stirring it. Just, you know, those things like Fino or Manzanilla, you know, which is in theory the two dry styles of sherry you'd be using if you're making a sherry-based tuxedo are so delicate. Um, And unless you're adding a little bit of like cane syrup or, you know, a little syrup, which people do. um, But generally, I think shaking it is going to make the mouthfeel of that drink so much thinner, uh, which takes away from it. Because if you're using, you know, sherry, it's going to be pretty bracingly dry already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to me, it's a stirred drink, but you could certainly go, you know, (laughs) whichever way you feels right. So... You mentioned about kind of modern cultural context here and and standing in in today's bar, you know, you know, bar culture that we mm-hmm. have. Before we get into that, because we have kind of previewed the the different variations and riffs. Uh, say I'm a new bar staff here at, at Margo, and you're you know you're <laughs> you're trying to test me on my classic cocktail knowledge here. Sure. So we're switching places. I'm you for a second, <laughs> but anyway, all of which is to say, if I were to ask. What are the commonly accepted variations of tuxedos number one through how many are there? And mm-hmm. what is the shorthand way that you would describe each of them? Yeah, sure. So I would say there's like four versions. Um, 
chronologically, it's funny, the history kind of goes out of order a little bit. But in theory, your kind of like original tuxedo or tuxedo number one, whatever you want to call it, is going to be the Harry Johnson version. So 50-50 gin martini, absinthe, maraschino, orange bitters, but you're using old Tom gin specifically. Um, So kind of a richer, rounder gin with a little bit more heft to it. Um, The tuxedo number two is basically an identical spec to that, but you're swapping out the old Tom for London dry gin. Um, you know, this version shows up also around like the, the 30s, um, at which point palettes, from my understanding, obviously I was not alive then, but, you know, people's palettes, you know, are constantly sort of shifting and evolving. And during that time, they were leaning a little bit drier. So that swap um, with dry gin just dries the drink out a little bit more. You're still using dry French vermouth in the most classic interpretation. Same amount of dashes, same things getting dashed in. Pretty much the same as the original, just changing the gin. Um, the What I would call the number three is sort of the version where you get a little bit of sherry added in, um, which like I said did not really catch on a lot, but we love her. She's got her place, you know, in the <laughs> – she's got her place in the, in the variations. Uh, you're basically still hitting dry gin with it usually, dry vermouth, and then adding in a little bit of sherry um, – I think that you see variations of this with a little bit of Ango as well. That's where that starts showing up. For me, that is not what I would do. It It's a crazy addition to that flavor profile, you know, especially like any of it, like dry vermouth, sherry, whatever. And then Ango is sort of like a, like, a, I don't know. I guess that's not totally fair because it works in a bamboo. But generally speaking, I feel like that heavy spice, you yeah. know. In, in Ango doesn't really make sense, but I feel like unless it's a if if we're using a a base spirit, mm-hmm. you know, obviously bamboo being you know completely sherry or no quote unquote real spirit in right, there, right? Um, right? No distilled spirit at least. When and we're talking unaged, and I'm probably missing something here and forgetting something <laughs> completely obvious, but I often feel like Angostura doesn't work; it's too heavy. Of course, you have the pisco sour, but we're using that on top of the float for more aromatics than right. actually mixing it in with a, you know, right. with something like a gin or whatever, right? Like I just don't feel like, all right, here's the exception, pink gin, but that's really kind of <laughs> stretching the realms yeah. of what we think of as a cocktail, right? Uh, but yeah, definitely, I, I I feel like that seems in my mind awkward a bit. Yeah, I think it's a little clunky, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, there's drinks for like. You know, in a bijou, a lot of times people put bitters in that. But you've also got, in addition to the gin, like these heavy ingredients, you know, like chartreuse and vermouth, like these these really heavy, rich things that can hold up to that. But a tuxedo generally is so kind of delicate yeah. that, you know, like to each their own. Like I said, there's a lot of versions out there that do call for it. You see photos of it. If you ever see like a photo of a tuxedo that's a little more brown in color, that's what's happened. Um, and... You know, I'm sure it's fine. It's not what I like. But that's kind of where you see that start showing up um, is in that variation. And then variation number four is my personal favorite, which is going to be with Sherry. Um, This is sort of the Waldorf Astoria spec as well. That is really the first kind of documentation of somebody fully nixing the vermouth and subbing in Sherry. Um, So that is going to be traditionally not quite a 50-50. It's going to be like a very wet gin martini usually, um, with sherry in place of the vermouth. And most of the time in that variation, you see people nix the maraschino and the absinthe. It's usually just orange bitters. Um, In my own personal version, I like still incorporating those in. I think it adds like a really nice depth to it. But in the most kind of traditional versions, you see those get replaced with just orange bitters by themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are kind of the, that's like the main grouping of the variations. The number two being the most... Uh, what I would call the most common and the most sort of like thought of, you know, for people who know what a tuxedo is, I think that that's going to be the main one that their mind would usually go to. Huh. So. What a fantastic evolution right there. <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, that's broken it down in, in, in such a way that makes it really, I think, really easy to understand, but also easy to remember because the progression that we see, which right. is fantastic. Um right. And I, I love that kind of de-layering at the end as well for the number four, where some folks might just be going, yeah, you know what, we're getting rid of all the bells and whistles, as I said earlier. But I'm really keen to hear your own thought process and approach to that. Um, I think when we're talking about ingredients now, 
Uh, we will get into those, but I think gin and sherry definitely are the two that bear most um, or are most worthy of examining here, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's more variations, more to play with. Totally. Um, where would you like to start out of those two? Um, I guess I guess we'll start with gin since that's you know sort of the the really big player here. You know that is the that's the through line in all of them. Um, you know, like I mentioned, the the oldest versions being Old Tom, and then later it moving into to dry. Um, and for you know anybody who's not familiar, Old Tom gin is just a style of gin that is a little bit rounder. Traditionally, has the addition of a bit of sugar. This is a gin that you see used in a Tom Collins or you know in a Ramos gin fizz. Traditionally, a Martinez, uh, lots of classic cocktails where it really adds just an extra bit of like heft and body. Um, for me personally, I actually reach for old tanjin quite often just because I, I'm so particular about like texture and mouthfeel in drinks. And so for me, I feel like it's a really easy way to add that in without like technically there's a little sugar in it, but there's really not like a perceived sweetness necessarily in old tanjin, in my opinion. I think it's a body thing more. Um, and so I reach for it quite often, but you can either do that or you can go with a London dry um, you know, of course, we have so many variations of gin now as well. I think a lot of American gin would also be able to be subbed in in this, you know, in this way because it's it's usually so dry for the most part, but not as like Juniper Ford necessarily. Um, for me, I prefer Old Tom, but as a general rule, usually it's either going to be that or London mm-hmm. Dry. Um, you know, some good options sort of within that. Heyman's makes a really great... Um, Old Tom Gin, very approachable, great price point. Um, Ransom makes one a little more expensive, uh, but also super tasty, you know, if you want to try something domestic. Um, And then for London Dries, you could go with any of the classic stalwarts, you know, like Beefeater, Heyman's, any of those guys would work. I think you could do something a little, like you could use like Monkey 47, which I think would be really interesting, you know, sort of this more like heavily aromatized style would also be really fun. Um, but yeah, it's really kind of up to your preferences of like what mm-hmm. kind of gin you like. I get the sense that opting for Old Tom as well allows for more differentiation between this and a and a classic martini, right? Where Yes, totally. Especially, you know, there, there are many different approaches to the 50-50 as well, right? right? But I think... Commonly, what we've seen in recent times are, you know, going wetter. So going literally 50-50, but with London dry and sherry in place of vermouth. I mean, mm-hmm. vermouth works great, but, you know, that 50-50 of London dry and sherry, I think, is is something I see a lot or I hear a lot of people calling out when, we talk, mm-hmm. when we're talking about martinis. Right. But even if you were to go dry or not, the very fact of pairing Old Tom with sherry allows this to be even more of its own cocktail rather than just the familiar profile of a sherry martini with a few extra, you know, nice finishing touches. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would definitely agree with that. You know, it sort of puts it a little bit more in its own lane. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because it is its own thing. It is separate. I think, you know, there's certainly an argument that it's just like a an improved martini. You know, of course, improved in this sense, meaning the addition of, you know, maraschino or absinthe. Um but yeah, I think using a different style of gin than what is traditionally called for in martinis definitely puts it like in its own sort of lane and makes it its own thing, you know, makes it more of a cousin rather than a direct sibling, which is nice. Definitely. Yeah. Gives. Yeah. Allows it to to have its own identity there in a way or four of them. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a lot going on. You know, it's a lot of personality. In complex. One drink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of complex, Sherry. Um, oh, yeah. You know. Actually, I'll just give you the floor. I know you're a sherry lover, and 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 I and I want to hear. I would love to hear your take when it comes to uh, both. Maybe speaking with guests, how you would approach guests when you're talking about sherry as an ingredient right. or within the realm of this cocktail, but then also your staff and maybe staff that you're training or colleagues that you're working with, because there is this tendency, I think, by folks to go like, all right. Sherry's super easy to understand. And I'm going to draw a diagram here. And it's the most intense diagram you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> yeah, and you're 100%. like, I get that. And it does make sense, but I'm not remembering it. So I'd love to hear your your kind of dual approaches there. Yeah, totally. So like you mentioned, Sherry, one of my favorite things. Um, that's sort of, for me, like when I'm at home, 
the main thing that I always drink is sherry. I don't really ever like make myself cocktails at home very often. I have a ton of spirits at home. I don't really drink them. I usually just have sherry. That's like my go-to thing. It's very Fraser, um, <laughs> you know, very, very crane in my approach. Um, but yeah, it's such a fabulous thing. I think that in in true form for the way that the bar world embraces and then discards trends, sherry has really had like such an interesting track. Um, you know, throughout the 80s, you see all of these blended sherries hit the market, which really gives it a bad name for such a long time. This is, I think, where the the stereotype of it being like a grandma wine. And granted, my grandpa loved blended sherries. <laughs> and so like... There's some validity there, but... My grandma still drinks it. Yeah, like, they, he was throwing back Harvey's Bristol Cream, yeah. you know? And I'm like, you know what? Go off, honestly. Um, like, But it gets this really bad rep for, like, quite a long time um, before actual regulations really get put in place on blended cherries, which is not until, like, 2012. So actually very recently that... Wow. Yeah, the Conseo Regulador was like, okay, we have to not be labeling these things... This way, you know, there was a lot of blended cherries that would be labeled as like sweet Oloroso, which, you know, Oloroso is historically a dry style um, that, you know, doesn't have any RS. And so a lot of misunderstandings. And then sort of, I would say around 2012, you start seeing bartenders really embracing sherry and being like, wait, you know, like kind of unearthing these recipes where it's like, this is awesome. and so delicious. Adds a lot of complexity. Let's do it. Let's use it. So over the next couple of years, it becomes really commonplace. And then, like I said, you know, as is wont to happen with trends in the industry, <laughs> everybody's like, oh, well, everybody's doing it. It's on everybody's menu. We're sick of it. It's gauche to be using sherry all the time. So people stop using it, um, which is a really unfortunate testament to the way that the industry can be sometimes where yeah. it's focused more on trends than actual, you know, like taste of the ingredients and to my mind, sherry is like one of the most versatile things that you can have, you know, in, in your toolbox as a bartender. There's so many different styles. It's not one thing. Um, you know, I <laughs> I sometimes describe it to people like weed, like, you know, when people are like, I don't smoke weed. And then some person who's really into weed is like, you haven't had the right strain. <laughs> you know, like sherry's the same way. If somebody's like, I don't like sherry. I'm like, you have not had the right style. <laughs> like, you just got to like, you got to work through it because there's so many different types. Um and so it's a really complex, like, gorgeous thing. I think it really deserves its place in the cocktail world. But the sort of most basic level of explaining it to people, and like I said, really common misconception is that sherry is super sweet, with the exception of, like, Moscatel and PX, not usually the case. And those are also some of the most, like, gorgeous sweet wines in the world. Um, but that's all, a whole different thing. But as a general rule, sherry, very, very dry wine, um, you know, produced somewhere in the Sherry Triangle in Spain. You know, this is Jerez, San Lucar de Bermeda, Mi um, Puerto de Santa Maria, you know, made in a style that's been done for like so long. Like, it's such an old kind of ancestral style of winemaking. And the hallmarks of it for kind of a Sherry beginning its life, basically it's Palomino's the grape and you start off with this wine that is aged in a style that's called biological aging, uh, which means that it's been aged under floor. And I think this is where a lot of people already get lost because it's kind of confusing. But floor is this sort of protective yeast that is specifically kind of cultivated in this environment in Spain. And for finos and manzanillas, um, amontillados, palarcotados, which also spend, you know, a bit of time under floor before seeing oxidation, basically what floor does is it sits on top of the wine and it protects it from light and from oxidation. Um, and it also eats glycerol, which is what really adds body into alcohol. Floor feeds off of glycerol. So when you have a wine like a Fino or Manzanilla that's been sitting under floor for an extended period of time, it's really eating up that glycerol and it's leaving this wine like bone dry. Really, really like delicate, bone dry wine. Um, a lot of Finos and Manzanillas people think are unaged, but a lot of them are aged for a very, very long time. Um, you know, they sit there under this floor just and it gets a lot of flavor impact from that as well. You know, it's a living thing. And so they're these insanely complex, really, really cool wines. Um, and I think where people start to really get lost with sherry is sort of the Solera system, which is this kind of 
almost like a, I don't want to say helix, but it's basically a system of barrels where the wines are kind of getting sort of constantly topped up with other barrels of wines. So they're they're marrying into each other. I think thinking of it as like a sourdough starter. Exactly. Yeah. Is, yeah, like a really good way to look at it. You know, you've got this thing where like you started it, it's got a complexity of its own. You you marry it into another barrel and you're adding that complexity and it's constantly sort of building on itself and feeding on itself. Um, which is my why most older sherries are all like non-age statement because it's sort of a mix of so many different, you know, types. And you see that more with oxidative styles of sherry. So usually it's going to be your Amontillados or your Policortados, um, which do see floor impact. And then usually that's broken once they are fortified. So you add a neutral spirit into the wine to fortify it, breaks the floor, and then this opens the wine up to oxidation, which in Amontillado and Policortado is where you start to see these really like nutty sort of roasted kind of dark, rich flavors appear, Mm -hmm. um, which makes these wines very different than Finos and Manzanillas. So you've got this massive range of flavors and textures. You know, at that point, once the floor is gone, you have more glycerol production that's not getting, you know, eaten up. So the body's different. And a lot of times with those wines, there is a perceived sweetness because of the flavors, but they are still bone dry. Hmm. They still don't have sugar. Um, You know, they're so fantastic, really fun, really complex just in and of themselves. So it's a really, really just, like, cool style. Um, It's got a lot of range. It's wearing a lot of hats. It can, you know, it can go anywhere. Like, you can do so, so much with it. And as an ingredient, I think it really, like, stands up. It's punchy. You know, Fino and Manzanilla in particular have a lot of salinity to them. So when you add it into a drink, you get this extra, like, pop of, like, high acid, salt, like, just delicious sort of extra balancing characteristics that you don't really get in a vermouth. Um, And it's a really, like, pure expression of the wine. You know, vermouths are aromatized, and they're delicious, you know. But it is, like, this wine that has other things added into it, whereas, you know, sherries are just this really pure expression of, like, really delicious wine. So That's a real testament to the wine, right? That that, that you're talking about how this is an ingredient that can be used, which is a, a, a base wine, Often from a from from a grape as well that a lot of people kind of describe as not having too much natural character anyway, right. compared to I don't know a riesling or something, right? You know, right? Just in terms of intensity, expressiveness, but it has no additional ingredients. It's all about the process, whereas right. vermouth is about the additional ingredients and the balancing that you do or whatever. Um, I thought that was a super interesting explanation. I, I'm going away from this being like, sounds like. It's all about the floor and, you know, (laughs) right? Because like floor is helping us not have any color, Mm -hmm. keeping the body down in the cases and and keeping the wine extremely dry. So dry, no color, thin or thinner, not as heavy bodied for Manzanilla and Fino. Yes. You get rid of the floor. You start to get color because it doesn't have the protection. Exactly. You get the nuttiness because it's exposed to oxygen. Yes. And you get the body because of that as well. And you don't have, we're not eating at the at the glycerol. Yes, exactly. Wow, there we go. That's, that's <laughs> sherry right there. Fantastic. And then the Oloroso and the sweeters, like, just forget about those for an hour. <laughs> you know, like that, that'll be next lesson. But no, I think describing that way has helped me visualize it a lot. And, you know, I did the WSET back in the day years ago and learned it all for that for you know but it's very, very interesting yeah, very very, cool, very long very cool. section on sherry <laughs> but that also backs up what you were saying earlier this is not just like it's not sherry is in or out or i like sherry or i don't sh- like sherry it's like this is a we're talking about a category here right, like, right. let's be honest like like gin has become like agave spirits are you know or, right you know all these different things um when it comes to maybe those folks out there buying their first bottle or they understand the difference in the styles now. Right. What are you turning to in terms of specific style of sherry for this and where should folks be looking? Like how much should they be expecting to pay uh, early on and so that they're not maybe spending too much or, that you know, yeah. they're exploring first? Yeah, totally. So... There are a couple of really good entry-level sherries that are a really solid price point and work really well. I would say the bulk of Lustau's kind of like entry-level stuff is, you know, what we use at the bar. I think that's what most people reach for. It's the most accessible. Um, And a 750 of 
like Lustal's Fino or Manzanilla, I think is going to be like somewhere in the 20 to like $25 range. Wow. Yeah, super approachable, um, really delicious. You can also buy, I would say like Valdespino, the Innocente is a really fantastic Fino. Um, I want to say that is like a 10-year Fino and it's not expensive. It's under 30 bucks usually. Wow. Really fantastic, super tasty. Um, for a tuxedo, generally to go for the most sort of like, if you're making it for the first time and you're trying to like really just try it out and get the bones of it, I'd go Fino or Manzanilla. Um, I think you could certainly sort of make a riff on it with like Amontillado. I was running a, a kind of martini riff at the bar for a while using Amontillado. Um, that was really, you know, super tasty because it is, like I said, it's still super dry, but it is going to change the profile quite a bit. Um, but yeah, Fino or Manzanilla. I would lean towards Lustau or Valdespino. Either of those are going to be great. Um, you know, and, and Fino and Manzanilla are distinct in their own ways, but for the sake of using them in a drink, I would I would generally say interchangeable. <laughs> interchangeable, yeah, yeah they, sure. You know, they're very, very similar. And so you could go either way. Um, a lot of sherry also does come in like 375s, smaller bottles. So if you're not sure how you feel about it, you know, it's a really good option to buy a little guy, test it out. I always recommend people to try it on its own because it's so freaking good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, give it give it a little nip, you know, for yourself and see <laughs> see how it feels. But, yeah. One for me, one for the cocktail. Exactly, you yeah. know, one for the cook. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> it's like those classic wine mom Pinterests. Very. Like, I like cooking with wine. Sometimes I even put it in the food, too. Yeah. You know, the classic. <laughs> but first wine. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> you know, next thing you know, you'll just be drinking a whole bottle. But... <laughs> But yeah. so we're very much treating like this like vermouth as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not making a ton of these, if you're not a bar, seek out those 375s. Yes. Keep it in the fridge, folks. Yes. And I Fino and Manzanillas generally do not hold up as long as oxidative styles of sherry. Um, you're going to want to keep them, you know, in the fridge. If you haven't opened it, you can keep it in like a relatively neutral place. As long as it's not like a windowsill, you know, it's going to be fine. But... I'd say within a week for for the unoxidative styles, you're going to want to drink them. So, yeah, a little bottle is a good way to go. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a fun thing that people can play with, too, is that a lot of sherry producers are making vermouth now. And, you know, vermouth used to be very common in Spain, and then it stopped production for quite a long time. And now a lot of the larger sherry houses are making sherry-based vermouths. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to kind of split the difference and, like, dip your toe a little bit, um, you know, Gonzalez Bias makes a fino-based vermouth that is so good, really delicious. You know, you get all the saltiness sort of from the fino, uh, but it's got a little more body. They macerate it with, like, some fruit as well. So, yeah, it's got a little more going on, but that's a really good way to kind of, like, dip your toe if you're not fully on board with Hmm. committing to sherry when you haven't tried it. Nice. Yeah. Sounds incredible. So you mentioned earlier, too, that you would probably opt for, you know, still including maraschino and absinthe and some, you know, some bitters there. Um, They're definitely ingredients we we cover a lot more than normal (laughs) uh, here at Cocktail College. And they're not as broad reaching as categories as as gin that we begun yeah. with so any any thoughts on there any thoughts that might be original thoughts on there or are <laughs> more like stick with the classics you know we we know where we're kind of going with maraschino and and to a lesser extent i guess absinthe yeah i think you know i think luxardo's probably the gold standard as far as as maraschino goes just because you know it's everywhere it's as far as we know, kind of the oldest one that's still being produced. Um, but there are quite a lot of other companies making it now, like smaller sort of artisanal versions. I think it can be a little difficult to find in smaller markets. So I'd say, you know, whatever version of it that you can find, it's such a small amount in the drink that as long as it's like a relatively classic version, you know, I, I think you're going to be fine. Um, same with the absinthe. I would say you're going to want to go actual absinthe rather than just like a pastis necessarily but you know at the same time like if you've got herb saint if you bought a bottle of herb saint to make sazeracs and then we're like what the f- what do i do with this herb saint <laughs> yeah. you know throw it in there like you know those Definitely. things any any sort of anise driven kind of like pastis e thing is going to be a good way to go um you know and it's a strong flavor you don't even have to do dashes you can do a rinse and get like the aromatics of it and you're going to feel good about it regardless um but yeah i don't i don't necessarily feel 
I don't have a hill to die on necessarily about the absinthe. I think that's I fair. Yeah. I think that's fair, especially again with through the lens of this cocktail, where it is, yeah. you know, it's more of a seasoning than a than a full on ingredient. Shall we yes, say? Yes, totally. You know, it's it's there. It's like a supporting player, but like it's not the star of the show. Mm-hmm. So you can you've got a little more flexibility, <laughs> I think. <laughs> All right, then. Well, now we're going to ask you to talk us through. Your tuxedo, your version of this drink, uh, as if you were making it at the bar. And if you can, yeah, walk us through with ratios, recipe, Mm -hmm. and then finishing with preferred glassware and garnish. Yeah, of course. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my preferred version of this is sort of an amalgamation of the various variations. So I like to use Old Tom Gin. Uh, I like to use a Manzanilla Sherry, a little bit of saltiness there. Um, and then I do still use absinthe, maraschino, and orange bitters. Um, so for me, I go for a true 50-50. So one and a half ounces of Old Tom Gin, one and a half ounces of a manzanilla. And then I usually would do like two dashes of orange bitters, two dashes of absinthe, and what I refer to as a teaspoon, which is actually if you have a quarter ounce measurement in a jigger, it's like half of that. It's like a little tiny splash of maraschino because the drink is pretty dry from the manzanilla. So adding a little bit of body between that Mm. and the old tom, you're getting back a little bit of texture and a little bit of richness. And you just combine all of that. You're going to go into a stirring glass. As I mentioned, I prefer it stirred. Um, You know, fill your glass all the way to the top with ice. Stir for roughly like 30 to 40 seconds, depending on the type of ice that you have. Um, You know, obviously, you want it to be very chilled. Since you are adding such a hefty percentage of sherry, it doesn't necessarily need as much dilution as like a classic martini might, um, because it is being diluted almost a little bit from the wine. Um, But, you know, texturally, temperature wise, you want it to feel right. And then that's going to go into a Nicanora or a coupe, whatever sort of stemmed glass that you're serving up that you you feel good about. And then classically, it's done with a cherry and a lemon, you know, obviously the cherry tying into the maraschino. I don't care for that too much personally. I like to go a little more streamlined and just do a lemon twist. But, you know, if you're super into cherries, obviously, like, throw her in there, you know, let her let her ride. But for me, it is a lemon twist to finish. Perfect. That sounds absolutely <laughs> delicious. Um, you know, I'm going to say about halfway through this recording, I realized that I have a 375 of Lustau on my (laughs) shelf at home. You know what to do. (laughs) I know what my plans are tonight. Yeah. You know exactly what to do with it. (laughs) And I get, I, I, I love that qualifier that you mentioned kind of about the, you know, if you can see a quarter ounce, then going maybe halfway on that with the maraschino, Mm -hmm. because that also got me thinking, well, hey, you've already taught us about as well, like if we're going with Amontillado or Palo Cortado in this case, then I'm going to be rethinking that. So I already know how to approach this classically or your version, but I'm also like, okay, well, if I'm opting for this style of sherry, that's where I'm going to be looking to tweak. So I don't know. I just feel like I'm coming away from this conversation armed with so much <laughs> knowledge and power when it comes to the tuxedo. I'm so glad, you know, <laughs> it's like she it's so ambiguous. So I feel like any right? clarification you can get is good because it is it's delicious. And it's, you know, sort of a I don't want to say an unsung hero because it's just not really sung about at all. But <laughs> You know, it's like it's yeah. there and it's mm-hmm. so good and people forget about it. And, you know, like I said before, this is sort of my personal like if somebody is like, oh, make me the kind of martini you like. I'm like, here you go. You know, this is the guy. It's so good. Wow. Um, it's a fun, a fun play on it without, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, I normally like martinis and bartenders will be like, let me make you something. And it's so far from a martini. And they're like, OK, yeah. <laughs> Great, you know, yeah. and and this is still like the bones are close enough that they're not going to be like, what have you done? Like, <laughs> you know, like it's it's a normal jump to make, but it's really fun and mm-hmm. kind of its own thing still. So yeah, I think the martini is one of those ones where it's so hard to riff on but maintain the 
I often describe it as like the soul of the cocktail or yeah, the, totally. just something that feels true to the the essence of what that drink should be and beyond just stirred and boozy. Right? Yes, totally. Um, but it sounds like we have that here. I'm literally itching to go home and make that version later <laughs> on. Uh, before we do, though, we've, we've got a few final pieces of business to attend to here. All right. Uh, the first of which being uh, whether you have any final thoughts on the tuxedo. I would say my final thoughts on the tuxedo are that I would love for it to just sort of enter people's lexicon a little bit more so that I feel comfortable ordering it when I go out. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's the type of thing where if I know the bartender, I'll be like, hey, can you make me this, you know? And if they don't know, I can be like, yeah, I want it with Sherry. And, and that's totally fine. But it is obscure enough that I feel a little annoying asking for it. You know, like there is an element of... In my personal opinion, as a bartender, when people come in and ask for really weird, old, like obscure drinks where it's like, what are you trying to do? You know, and even if that is genuinely what they want, there's an element of where it feels like, like, what are you trying to sort of like flex this weird repertoire of of drinks, you know? And so there's a little self-consciousness around ordering it. And I would love for it to kind of get back into the mix of things that feel fine to order. Um, You know, we talked you know before we started you and i talked a little bit like the corpse survivor you know number one and number two and the corpse survivor number two you know has sort of become the like just synonymous with like a corpse survivor in general and you can order that comfortably and be like can i get a corpse survivor and they'll be like yeah for sure and they're gonna just make you the number two and so with the tuxedo even if it's like maybe not the version i have in mind i would like for it to sort of swing back into you know people's lexicon of something that you can be like can i get a tuxedo and they're gonna make you something in that camp and not Mm -hmm. feel funny about it um (laughs) but but yeah i think it's a great drink i think Mm -hmm. it's really fun i think if you like martinis or you're trying you know you've got somebody who likes martinis and you're trying to show them something new it's a really good way to go i think it's you know as far as drinks to make at home it requires like a couple of extra bottles but I think that they are worth it, mm-hmm. you know, and most of them you can get in like a smaller size and and play around with. And it's just so versatile. It's got so many different things that you can do with it. It's got, you know, so much that you can plug in and take out and change and whatever. And so there's so many variations that make it really fun to kind of keep exploring and playing with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's really fun. I hope that people, you know give it a shot and and <laughs> try their version and become opinionated about their own version. I love when you see that in drinks when people are like, well, I make it this way. And it's like, that's great. You I know? mean, that's what I was going to say. You know, final, final kind of uh, thoughts on that from myself is I'm assuming this is a drink you'll order if you see it on the menu, but I'm assuming you don't often see it on menus or yeah. you might see ostensibly this drink, but someone's tweaked it slightly and they've given it their own name. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure someone's done this. But if they haven't, or maybe not exactly this, putting this out, there, this idea out there for free, this is what I would do if I if I ran a cocktail bar and I am not qualified to do that <laughs> in any way. However, if I was going to put on a menu, I would do this: the A sides and the B sides. Mm. And so the A sides would be, you know, gin martini, Manhattan, old fashioned, blah blah blah. Like, Move very on from straightforward, there. Straightforward. Classic. The B-side on the same level as the Jim Martini, we're going tuxedo. And then, you know, we're doing that. Yeah. Just as a way of like getting all these people into drinks. It's like, okay, these are our versions of the classics and these are the classics you should know, the lesser known classics. Yeah. There you go. Maybe that's it. Or maybe that's a a, a, a recipe book someone could do. Who yeah, knows? Putting I, that one out totally. There. Like some deep cut classics. Yep. You know, I feel like Maison Premier's menu is kind of like yes. that, which I love. Like. I think it's probably the only menu I've ever seen a chrysanthemum on, you know, like <laughs> yeah. like actively. Um, but yeah, I love that. I, I think it's so fun when people unearth the classics and make them approachable, you know, and and sort of something that's like visibly there to be tried. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. You should do the A sides and the B sides. I love that. <laughs> really good. There we go. You know. Listen, and I, and I don't want to say that no one else out there is doing it. Folks, listeners, if you if you do know of anywhere, uh, reach <laughs> out to us, podcast at finepair.com. We always like the feedback. <laughs> um, but Kat, some final business for today, as, as with every episode, mm-hmm. um, it's our five recurring weekly questions, beginning with question number one. And that question is, of course, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? 
I would say, so we've got a not a massive back bar at Margot, but it has expanded quite a lot. Um, technically, it's probably Amaro's, just out of, you know, Amaro's in the cores, just out of, like, you have to sort of have so many of them um, to account for a lot of classics, I would say. But actual spirit-wise, probably rum. Um mm. We have, you know, rum sort of outside of Sherry. That's my second second favorite girl. Love her. <laughs> um, so misunderstood. And, yeah, we have quite a bit of rum, a lot of, like, sipping rums, too, which is really nice. Um, you know, it's not, like, a massive selection, but it's kind of a small but mighty sort of thing. You know, nothing super rare or crazy, but I think it covers a lot of, like, the production areas of rum and different styles. And so, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest category I've got outside of just like liqueurs. Nice. Yeah. Um, in the Amaro category, mm-hmm. have you tried the 1099 Trader Joe's Amaro? <laughs> oh my God, I haven't had the pleasure. No. It's, so it's, uh, we've literally got, yeah, we got the, I, I want to say exclusive. It's not like they gave us the exclusive. It's just um, <laughs> Brad Thomas Parsons for Vine Pair on the very day that this episode is going live. So if you're, Listening to this when it goes out at 6 a.m. Eastern, you're going to need to wait about three more hours. But <laughs> everyone else, it's on vinepair.com by now. And you know what? I'm not even going to say what we think of it or, or what the verdict is. I'm just going to say there's a 1099 Trader Joe's Amaro out oh there. God. Uh Read about it on vinepair.com. Oh, my God. How am I going to sleep before I read this? Like, I... <laughs> uh, wow. Yep. I got to check it out. That's insane. Good for them. Good for them. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Love TJs. Amaro Joes. <laughs> Love to see it. Um, and you know what? Just to tease a little bit more about that article too. So the name of the product actually has a really fun serendipitous tie-in to the founder of Trader Joe's as well and and their career. So, you know, it's a great story. BTP with the goods there on that one. <laughs> um, all right. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal beyond sherry if we were going <laughs> ingredient? Yeah, I'm probably getting predictable here. <laughs> no, um, I think that. <laughs> Gotta keep it hard. Uh, Gotta keep it, yeah. gotta take some edge to this. <laughs> I would say maybe I think like Mistels, um, which are sort of split-based spirit and, like, juice products. So, like, Pomo or Pinot de Charente, Ooh, yeah. um, you know, Ratafia. They they kind of fall almost into that, like, fortified wine category, but not quite. Um, I mean, technically they are fortified wines, but it's usually the other half of it is not necessarily wine. It's yeah. usually a juice from whatever the base distillate of the spirit is. Um, and they're so delicious and fun. They have a lot of complexity on their own, but they have... They're usually sweeter, and so they do usually have a lot of bodies. So I think, you know, in things where normally you would need, like, a syrup to add the texture, you can sub those in really well in the way that, like, a lot of fortified wines can't really do. You know, a lot of times I think, you know, like sherry or vermouth, those things, as good as they are, come out a little thin, and you end up having to sort of, like, supplement it with, you know, a tiny bit of, like, simple cane syrup or whatever. Um, but as a general rule, mistels are, like, pretty heavy texturally, so they're a really nice way to, like, incorporate flavor and a little sweetness and body without, you know, any work on your end. Mm. Um, and they're also, again, really delicious on their own as well. But, yeah, I think those are kind of, like, a underutilized thing nice. in general. It's on brand, but taking us even further. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? I would say it is that asking for help is a sign of professionalism and not a sign of weakness. And, you know, that's in service or in any general area of things, you know, knowing what you don't know is a sign of strength, you know, being able to be like, hey, can you show me how to do this? Can you tell me what this is? hey, I need you to do X, Y, Z, rather than, you know, trying to be prideful about it and end up, like, in in the end, you know, when you do that, you end up undercutting yourself or your guest, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I think just, like, being able to humble yourself and ask for help 
in things, you know, and I was told that at a restaurant I worked at when I was like 19 and it's always kind of stuck with me. So I think that's for me kind of the biggest thing is mm-hmm. like, you know, be willing to to ask for help. Um, I love it. I love it. <laughs> that's great words of advice right there. <laughs> Penultimate question here today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Oh, God. That's funny. I was thinking about this one earlier because, you know, so many bars that I love have closed, um, you know, especially after the pandemic and everything. And so I feel like there's a lot of them that I love. And I'm like, oh, my God, like if they all open on the same day for one night, where would I go? <laughs> uh, but I think maybe for me it would be Saison in Richmond, um, what, you know, not not the San Francisco superstar restaurant. But Saison was like a bar and market um, one side was a cocktail bar and the other side was a market where you could get like, you know, Madeira highballs on draft, but also a cappuccino. And, you know, you could buy a bottle of wine in the market and then open it there and sit Love down. It. Yeah, Love and, those and play. Kind of yeah, it was so fun. So great. There wasn't really anything else quite like it in Richmond and it closed maybe a year or so ago. And their cocktails on the cocktail side were fabulous. And yeah, I just have a lot of very fond memories there with people. And it was always sort of, I was like, if I open something, it will be like this, uh, you know, sort of one of those really lovely spaces, almost like similar energy to Bacchanal in New Orleans. Um, But, you know, maybe a little more tame, but Mm -hmm. yeah, really just like a special kind of place. And so that was a huge bummer for me when it closed. I think Saison would be probably where I would go if I could. Yeah, like like I said, that that model is fantastic. Not all states allow it. I wish more yeah. would because um, I think it would do a lot of great for wine as well. Yeah, and absolutely. The, yeah, you know, we're talking a lot about how the wine industry is undergoing its own struggles, but I think that right. you know, like that ability to—it's kind of like the bottle shop for craft beers and stuff yeah. like that. Or yeah, exactly. You know, like you pop in, and a lot of the options are really affordable, and there's no like corkage or anything to yeah. drink it there. You just buy it, and are like, can I get three glasses? And, you know, it's a lot, at least there, most of them were pretty young, kind of more natural wines, but it's a really good platform for those things because they're inexpensive, but people are way more likely to come do that rather than paying like a massive markup in the restaurant. Um, And so, yeah, I I think it was a really great space. I love that model. I I would love to see more of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Virginia is like a notoriously difficult alcohol state, so... I don't honestly even know how it was allowed. (laughs) They're so annoying um, to work with. It's really difficult to get a lot of different spirits and stuff in Virginia. And yeah, notoriously kind of a pain, but great spot. Would love to see that. I don't really feel like there's a ton of that in New York. I don't even know if we can do it here. Yeah, I know we can do it with beer and maybe certain places that have like, you know, they call like the farmer's license. I don't know. Yeah. Um, like I don't know if there's yeah. like on-prem no. drinking allowed. I don't think. Which is such it, a bummer. It's so it cool. New Orleans, on the other hand, anything oh, goes. God, they've got it figured out. <laughs> it's anarchy. I love it. <laughs> Pure chaos. They know what they're doing. <laughs> Kat, if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Miami Vice. Definitely. I would not make it. I'm really bad at making them. I've never like worked at a tiki bar or anything. And I feel like frozen drinks are not a strong suit for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm man enough to admit that. I know mm-hmm. I know my weaknesses, but yeah, a Miami Vice, like it's a guilty pleasure drink, but it's freaking delicious. So good. Like what a send off, you know. <laughs> and so and it's really two drinks. So you're yeah, kind of cheating. But exactly. Yeah, it's delicious. And that would be the one. What a choice. I love <laughs> it. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for yeah. the in-depth Sherry explainer, <laughs> reminder for some explainer. Uh, thank you for inspiring what I'm doing the for <laughs> later on today. Uh, yeah, Kat, it's been a real blast. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's been so fun being here. You know, for anybody who's still awake after hearing me talk about Sherry for <laughs> the better part of an entire day. Uh, but yeah, this has been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Until yeah. next time. Until next time. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, 
Go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. Cocktail College is brought to you today by Tanqueray. I don't know about you, listener, but I'm one of those people that needs a mobile app to track my budget. And I'm going to let you into a little secret. I actually have a line item on mine marked Tanqueray. It's true, because I'm a gin martini drinker and Tanqueray is my martini gin. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I have a Tanqueray monthly budget, but it's not just for martinis. Now, I turn to Tanqueray for any of the gin classics because it always delivers on that classic London Dry profile. You know, Tanqueray's, it's not like a good friend. It's like a best friend, a dependable stalwart that always delivers. Now, if you're looking for cocktail inspiration, well, you know you've come to the right place. But if you're looking for something tailored specifically for Tanqueray, you should head over to www.tanqueray.com now. Because you know what, listener? When it comes to gin cocktails, you deserve the best.